Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. say it was last march in a bar in downtown la you were djing um, okay you were there at that yeah a friend of mine casey bar. yeah 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 casey, casey. Chaos, yeah he invited me along oh, okay. um and i just remember thinking how la is the spot danzig was hanging out there right uh roy moyorga was there yeah. as well and i was just like only in la would i be in this situation huh, do you do a lot of djing i only did it that one time and i oh, enjoyed right. it you know uh uh, I didn't. I have never done it again since. All oh, right. So. Well, you should, man. Oh, thank as you. As a DJ, uh, as an appreciator of that. Oh, wow. Okay. Cool. I thought I did a good job, but you know, if, doing a good job in the scheme of things doesn't necessarily mean that much a lot of times. So it's just sort of uh, how in in this club environments is how much of a kiss ass you can be or whatever. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you got a great record collection, obviously. Yeah. And uh, plenty to choose from. Is LA home now? Is that what you yeah, reside? Yes, so I've been there for a long time now. Yeah. How does that compare? I mean, I guess when you started out, both New York and LA were very different cities, anyway. Yes. But what would you say is the obvious differences between the the West and the East Coast in the music scene? In the music scene, I don't pay attention too much to the music scene. Uh, in uh, New York, I seems to be dead to me. Uh, apart from like hipster music. Is that why you left? Part of the reason. No, it was, I sort of got stuck out in L.A. It was uh, more uh, personal reasons. Uh, my life was just like a huge mess at that time. And, and then we I, I really wanted to get the hell out of there and 
Uh, I lived briefly in Indianapolis, and then uh, we made uh, Rude Awakening in L.A., and I just stayed there. Right. I just never left. I sort of... <laughs> uh, L.A.'s changed a lot in the last 20 years. Yeah. How so? It's gotten more cosmopolitan. I think it's food-wise, culture-wise, it's, it's moving ahead with the standards of places like London and New York and... Uh, it's gotten more expensive, uh, but I, I've, I've grown to really love Los Angeles. I, I love the weather. I think it's a healthier lifestyle. Uh, the proximity to mountains and the sea is wonderful. And, Good for the soul, And then you right? have the best of like places like New York. Again, like I said, the, the food culture and uh, you know, the arts is great. There's some great museums there that I appreciate a lot. And it's uh it's become a really cool place to live. What was it like growing up in New York in was it sixty six you were born? Are you fifty? Yeah. Right now, right. So it was kind of I guess when you were a teen was when that city was really exploding culturally with hip hop. Well, yeah, I mean well yeah, there was a lot of that. It was, it was, uh, there's a movie called uh, Summer of Sam. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a very dangerous city as well. Yeah, it was it was bad back then. It, it, it was a lot of violence. Uh during the sixties it was with a situation where they call white flight. You know, most lower middle class and middle class uh, white people were trying to get the hell out of there. So, uh, you know, we had the onslaught of uh, street violence and graffiti and uh, just drug addiction, etc. that happened in the 60s and the 70s a lot. And that's the time I grew up. I mean, it was... Uh, Do you remember being crazy. exposed to a lot of that as oh, a young absolutely. kid? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, uh, you know, in Queens, you saw a lot of that. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, even growing up through through later years, I mean, it was uh, it was unheard of for anybody to be sober. I mean, it was crazy. So, um, you know, we uh, I used to get into bars at a young age. How old did you start? Or well, what age were you when you started partying? I guess probably about eleven. Right. Yeah. So that's a, that's a young, uh, yeah. that's an early start, right? Yeah. <laughs> and was that alcohol? Was that drugs? Yeah, that... alcohol, pot, or anything I could get my hands on. Right, right. So that was generally what everyone was doing for the most part, unless you know the the, the smart kids and kids that had parents that were watching what they were doing. They were sort of shut indoors, and you never saw those kids that were in their houses studying and paying attention, and or in their apartments and. Those are the ones that probably uh, succeeded in life. Everyone else sort of fell into whatever back then. Uh, it's a different time completely. I mean, the punk scene was big in New York. I mean, again, you know, uh, hanging out and eventually working at CBGB was a big deal. So, How did you get that gig? Well, I was going to the, uh, the Institute of Audio Research, and uh, I, was, I wasn't even in a band. I wasn't even really... Uh, I, I sort of gave up on it. I have an older brother, and he was like, you know, you know, if you're not, if you're not getting a band that's successful by the time you're 20, then forget it. And I was like, yeah, maybe you're right. So uh, I went into an audio engineering program, and uh, you needed to have an internship somewhere. So inevitably, uh, I just knew everyone that worked at CBGB, and uh, they said, yeah, we have an opening, and they just said, you're, well, it's not an internship. You're going right to work. So. You know, without that much knowledge of what I was doing, I was suddenly uh, behind the board there uh, during the audition nights. And then, you know, I, I proved myself and eventually did the hardcore matinees and then was like the... the they were Sundays, right? It was like yeah. an all-day 
Right. I bet you saw some pretty crazy violent scenes oh, at those shows. Oh, that was great. Yeah, I mean, the shows were intense. And, <laughs> I mean, uh, there was a lot of crappy bands and there was some good ones where kids were going crazy back then. Yeah. And then you had the big shows, the Rock Hotel shows, uh, where, again, like Prong, we were working hard to try to get one of those. And, and uh, I remember, you know, the, the, the Ritz and both the old and the new Ritz would sell out. It'd be a lot of kids and it'd just be, it was a more vibrant scene. I mean, it was new. It was something, it was something different. I mean, this is before grunge and, uh, uh, you know, hardcore was the deal back then. That was what was happening. What's your memories of mixing bands? And were there any that obviously you would have, you know, performed duties to lots and lots and lots. Were there any that really stood out as just being particularly special and, you know, even before they were big or known? Well, there's a band that, that didn't really get big or known it was called Rest in Pieces that I really liked a lot. And, uh, like, the Beg to Differ record with Prong, uh, I just, there's a couple of instances where uh, some of the concept behind that was was borrowed from them. Right, right. And uh, there was bands like Breakdown I really liked a lot. And uh, some of the more popular bands I didn't like too much. So it was it, those were the two big ones the two ones that I liked that I mean Breakdown is still around I mean I, I really uh, you know I uh, really liked them a lot I, mean, I knew them all I mean I, I did mix all the bands and uh, I wish I still had the off the board tapes I mean I used to make off the board tapes and uh, being the honest person that I am uh, I never made copies of them and I could have had like this unbelievable collection of and made a fortune of that, then I wouldn't have to do this anymore. So. <laughs> and, you know, acts like the Beastie Boys even, that's obviously where they were Well, I mean, I was in a band, like, uh, in, like I mean, I was, uh, the, for one of the first bands, I was in a band called Radiant Boys, and we played Tompkins Square Park with the Beastie Boys, damn, I must say like around 82 or something, and they were still a hardcore band. So this is even pre-Cookie Puss. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I saw them, and they were smart. I mean, they did, you know, well, Rick was really smart. And I remember I used to go out by NYU, and Rick used to keep his dorm uh, window open, and he used to just, he was right there, like, on, I guess it was, like, you know, like West 4th Street, around there, I forget, like, University Place, or, and he, uh, his, the dorms were there, and he would uh, have his window open, and you'd see Rick, like, out, like, just jamming like rap music or the early whatever that was an early techno whatever the hell he was blasting out of there you could go why there and he'd just be there like DJing from his window <laughs> like the king of campus yeah was he a key orchestrator in a lot of those movements and oh I, I would say so even you know obviously with dance from thrash and, to yeah thrash rap I mean, metal a big, great tastemaker and uh, uh, knew his records and uh there's a lot of guys that are still around like that, like Mike Gitter, who's a and R now at Century Media. I mean, if you really want to learn a lot about records and hardcore, he's the guy to talk to. Him. He knows everything, and and he could he could make a tree in just his mind of where everything came from. And you yourself, as a musician, as an aspiring songwriter, where were you pulling from for inspiration when you started prong? You mentioned uh, the one band. What was it? For? Yeah, rest in pieces. I got rest later on. I mean, like I. Uh, I mean, essentially, I'm like a, like a post-punk guy. Uh, so you're talking uh, Killing Joke. And... Exactly. Yeah, Killing Joke is a huge thing. I was totally into Bauhaus. I was into the, all the Bat Cave bands and that whole thing. And, you know, I had dyed black hair. And, you know, I never went out during the day. <laughs> I was like one of those guys. So uh, a vampire. Yeah. yeah. 
And, uh, you know, working at the club, I mean, the first band went on at 10.30 at night every night. And we by the time I got out of there, it was like, you know, four in the morning. And I lived right down the block on Stanton Street. And, uh, but as far as back to, you know, and then, early, I mean, early thrash too, or, you know, I mean, like, you know, Celtic Frost was a big influence. And I've always been into more into European stuff, like, you know, Destruction and those bands. And, and then, you know, of course, like Black Flag. I mean, I, I've been into Flag for since you know since the early days you know pre-henry so you know uh, they were a huge influence on me you know and i love the henry records even better now like the, you know from uh, you know damaged on when did epic kind of get a whiff of what you're doing and offer you the major label deal and kind of bring you into that world well that resorts back into what i was saying earlier where we were trying to get this this major uh, exposure with the major, the larger rock hotel shows instead of bumming around the Lismar Lounge and, and uh, Seabees. And we finally got one and it, it just took our first show, uh, which was with the Cro-Mags. And uh, it was a classic instance where an A&R guy from, and Destruction played that show too. So uh, the a an A&R guy from Epic came after the show and said, you know, I want to sign you guys. It was just blown away by it. And, uh, yeah, we got signed. So we had to, we did have two indie records already yeah, yeah. before that. So we were working hard. I mean, we were definitely doing all the right things in order to get into that situation. I mean, back in the day too, uh, there was a stigma to being signed to a major label. I mean, we lost a lot of fans back then. They said we were sellouts, blah blah blah. Um, it really and, did draw a line in the sand, didn't it? Yeah, back in those days, in terms of. The kind of core yeah. underground scene fans, and yes. then, and I mean, we were really affected by it. Did you lose friends as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of people, and and band, I refuse to mention a, a larger uh, British uh, grindcore band <laughs> uh, had snubbed us severely verbally. Uh, a band that we toured with earlier. Uh, then we did right after we got signed. We we did uh, like an early rock hard festival, and all the bands sort of would not speak to us, and we had a lot of problems back then. Uh, you worked with Mark Dodson on Beg to Differ. Yeah. Um, he, I know a little bit. Um, I've spent some time with Mark. He is good friends to this day with Whitfield Crane from Ugly Kid Joe because he worked with them on their America's Least Wanted record. But he was quite a prolific guy around that time, wasn't he? With Judas Priest and suicidal tendencies and. What was it about his stamp and his method that kind of drew you to working with him? Because you've always been hands-on with the production yourself since day one as well, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, well, I work with Mark heavily on Beg to Differ. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in in total recollection of it, I and mean, he he's, he was a little bit confused with Prong. Uh, he he really didn't know what how exactly to approach it. So me working at the Hardcore Matinees had a had a really a good influence on that record because I mean the whole gated snare thing and the whole dryness of that record was something that you know that he he agreed to doing and but it was discussed uh, and uh, you know he wanted to move away from that on prove you wrong that's why I really don't like prove you wrong that much but uh, you know I I just thought Dotson would you know the label wanted Dotson right. More than anything, we needed somewhat of a name, somebody that could get the record done fast, that could have some discipline in the studio. Because, I mean, a band member can't really do that. So, uh, you know, he, he was 
he had the experience in order to get a record done cheaply for three weeks and just bash it out. And then, you know, we just had some discussions on what, what direction we were going to go on it. And we just had a lot of fun doing it. I mean, it was, he was fantastic to work with. Um, and then the follow-up to that was, I guess, you were moving slightly more in the electronic way, weren't you then? But is it, is it just the sound of the record you don't like? Is it the songs? That's why you know there was a, a, that period of prong where yeah we you know well Ted was always uh, totally uh, interested being from Swans yeah. uh, 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 very intent upon moving in that direction more like we, with samples uh, with it bringing in an added dimension which I totally agree with I thought it was cool it set prong apart from uh, being just an average thrash hardcore band yeah and. Uh, uh, we know we started getting we got a sampler and we started screwing around with it so uh, that's where it started you know not to be like I know that's how Al started with ministry was just getting samplers and just started fooling around with them and uh, you know that's how really a lot of that stuff started uh, where you know we try to still stay in stay in a in a hardcore like a rock and roll trio uh, vibe with it but it, it started just developing into that more or less and you know, I think technology really is finally caught up with prong. Where yeah, I've always wanted it to be where it is now, where uh, it, it, it's just it's great now. That's where you, the advent of the later records, where you know we you know making the records have become easier and you know more attuned to what we want to do and what I want to do. And uh, I, I initially I thought samplers and then you know uh, digital audio workshops and the primitive stages would help prong in in doing something different and it sort of hindered us back then because of just where the technology was at the time and you know lack of of uh, memory for you know you have a you know a, a 32 megabyte computer that was our memory for the whole thing I mean everything came from the sampler so it was difficult to really do what we were trying to do and uh, pretty pioneering though what you were doing wasn't it with a few other bands you were sort of leading the way. Well, I mean, like, it, it's it's not anything of, you know, crowning us as any geniuses. It's just uh, that uh, it's where we came from. I mean, you know, like I said, I come from a post-punk background. A lot of, like, most, like, metal guys was strictly, uh, you know, was Priest and Maiden. And I, I really didn't come from that that much. So, uh, you know, I was sort of thrown into, like, you know, a hardcore punk and, you know... I, general background again like you said to I me mean, from uh, the three of us you know mike ted and i were you know hugely into killing joke and you know we, we sort of meshed that with you know modern metal and hardcore so uh you know killing jokes always had the keyboards and you know they had like these long grinding grooves which uh we wanted to put into prong and it was a hard formula to to, to uh, accomplish i mean uh you know we just roll the dice with it and you know i think that you know the band really suffered a lot because of it, because we took way too many chances i think from a marketing standpoint and from you know really trying to get popularity that's for sure the commercial i guess breakthrough for lack of a better word did happen with cleansing the album for yeah. terry date uh what's your memory of making that record working with him i guess at that time he was like pantera's guy that's what he's probably most known for um what's your memory of being in the studio with a guy like that and creating you know what you did create well the the, the the real thing about terry that really sticks out was the fact that that he didn't really interfere with the creative process of the band or he didn't get involved in lyrics he didn't get around and vo get involved with vocal melodies he he really he, he was almost a strictly an engineer and, and a, a 
a disciplinarian, more or less, uh, and just getting it happen. I mean, a producer, I mean, people think producers a lot of times are like these big creative guys when a lot of times their main job is to get the thing done under budget. And, um, you know, that that's really his his main job. And we didn't go under budget. I mean, he was always asking for more money. But uh, <laughs> uh, Terry's a really easy guy to get along with, and he's a sweet dude. So that, that, that helps the process a lot. And, you know, he knows how to get good performances out of people. And, and you know, he's more of a, a laid-back type of guy. It's sort of like I look for, like, managers in baseball or in any professional sports. There's the guys that are hitting people hard that want to make all the moves. Then there's guys that sort of stay back. Terry's more, more of a, a passive producer. So, like, any of the lyrics and any of the vocal things that came around and any of the guitar parts were really just me, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that you know, that... We weren't as geniuses as much as like Pantera and like Phil was such a great singer and uh, you know I didn't really have that you, you know I, I got thrown into the vocalist role as prong I never really knew what the hell I was doing so it was almost until recently like you know working with a guy like Steve Evitz who who uh, knows vocals and really knew you know a lot of different mic techniques and and uh, you know how 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 vocally I would approach different parts of the song and where I really started learning, you know, more about singing. It took 20 years before I was like, oh man, I didn't have to do it that way anymore. I didn't really have that, any kind of education early on. Terry didn't provide with that. He wasn't a musician. I mean, he's, he's an engineer and a fantastic engineer. And the album itself obviously kind of like put you in, you know, the mainstream world at that time. Beavis and Butthead, I mean, I mean we don't really have anything like that now. But they were <laughs> like tastemakers, weren't they? Yes. Like they would break bands. This was obviously way pre-internet, and you know now you can go online and just find out anything about any band. But I know. Then I think you, because you're old school. Yeah. Then there was this kind of you know limited uh, exposure. Yes, that's the word I was going to put in. Yeah. Um, it's still like that in America in a lot of ways because there's a there's certain. There's people, there's, there's young folks and uh, older as well that, that will scour Spotify now and really look out and try to discover new stuff. For the main, even in Europe now, it seems the same way where unless you get the big exposure, no one knows who the hell you are. So um, I think it's like that in America even more now where, uh, you know, radio has dwindled a lot and, uh, you know, there, there isn't those large uh, uh, vehicles for exposure. But that, I mean, that helped us. I mean, I remember, like, even on, like, Beg to Differ, Prove You Wrong, the first two epic releases, uh, we were just in a van, traveling, hitting shows, like, doing, you know, the same thing that we do now. And no, one's, no one really cared too much, unless, like, a core audience, which is sort of where it's back now. And, uh, you know, until, you know, KNAC and, you know, Beavis and Butthead, picked up on, on snap your finger, snap your neck, like no one cared about prom. I mean, in the big picture, you know? So uh, that was just another luck of the draw. I mean, we we're lucky to have that song and, you know, that, that something like that happened. I guess, you know, if it wasn't for that, I probably would definitely not have a career now. So cheers, Beavis and Butthead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Headbangers Ball as well was, I guess, another key thing of that time. Yeah, they um, picked up on, like, on, that was on, you know, video, but no one really knew. Like, it was like, yeah, the uh, the uh, the theme song was uh, riff from uh, Lost and Found, and uh, you know it, it didn't really uh, appear uh, in the credits that much, and no one really knew, knew it was what wrong. it was. Yeah. yeah, so it really didn't help that much. Yeah, and around that time, 
two major tours I was reading that he did, which must have been incredibly exciting, uh, was Sepultura, the Chaos AD tour, and Pantera, Far Beyond Driven. Put us in the picture of, I guess, the Sepultura one first. Um, that band at that time was quite ferocious. Well, that was the same tour. Oh, so, was it? Yeah, oh, right, yeah, right, right. It was, it was uh, a package a, of... A three-band bill or like, like yeah. what we got on tonight, right? Yeah. Uh, well, that was monumental. I mean, even to this day, every time I go to the merch booth or something, especially in America, it's like, I saw you guys with Pantera and Sepultura back in the day. You know, like every, <laughs> that was a, a huge tour. Yeah. And uh, for hard bands to be playing large venues and, and, you know, hockey rinks was unheard of, you know. I mean, that was the first one of, of, of that, you know, of the, in that genre to start hitting like that. And people were like, who are these guys? It was, it was the new breed, you know. It was the new bands that were coming around and uh, it was exciting, you know. It was really, it was great. And uh, I don't know, like I said, like earlier in the conversation, like with the advent of grunge, that sort of, didn't last long. Yeah. Because, I mean, Pantera kept going and they held it, but, you know, like, uh, it was uh, destroyed with with the Seattle scene because, uh, you know, the labels started going, well, we can't market this stuff to the masses, so, you know, we're going to dilute or drop these bands uh, from their budgets and just center on the Pearl Jams and then the countless uh, other bands that were copies of uh, the grunge groups that were just continually being pushed on the radio in America, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, you know, I, I'm not bitter about that or at all or want to appear that way. It was just, uh, you know, they, everyone's got to make a buck and, you know, that's what they wanted to do. And uh, we, Prong, for some reason, we stuck around on a major label throughout those years, which was a long... We, we couldn't even believe it, you know. It was like I remember I was in London when we finally got the call that we were dropped from Epic, and I was like, "Thank God! I mean, finally this is over." <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't have to uh, try to fit into this mold of of a major label band anymore and try to meet their requirements. It was a lot of pressures with that. Rude Awakening came out the same day as Nevermind, right? Do you remember that? I don't happened? remember that. I mean, that's ironic. I mean, I, I can't <laughs> believe you point that out. Yeah, yeah. Because Cobain and those guys came down to see us like when we played Seattle. And uh, that was that whole era where no one knew what was going to take off. It was like, you know, uh, alternative metal bands like, you know, like Prong and Helmet. And then there was um, the grunge bands. So uh, that's what got big. Even with that grunge scene, I think as well, there was a lot of interesting stuff being made, and in a lot of instances, it was the more, perhaps, bland end of it. That was apart from Nirvana, who did blow up big. I mean, Nirvana's background and roots seem to stem as much as bands like yourselves to Killing Joke and that kind of post. It's thing. true. Yeah, we would exactly. That's a really good point because I mean, I always say that that Nirvana should be uh, at, at Bob Mold's feet yeah. and just kissing his feet because. I mean, it, it, it's so Husker do a lot of what they, what they were doing, and I was like, well, this is when I first heard Nirvana. I go, well, this is this is uh, Husker do. Yeah, you know, I mean, and um, and it, it's it's amazing. Now I we, we did a covers record a couple of years ago called I loved Songs it. from the Black Hole. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we and it's like I, it's amazing how many uh, interviews I did, and people were like, uh, especially in Germany. Where we're saying like, oh, who is Husker Du? Like nobody knew who that who wow. they were. Wow. Outside of America, 
So I was like, I can't believe it. I mean, you know, uh, for those who know, it's a household word, and they were huge when when I in '82 back in that period. I remember I was seeing, and I was like, and then you know when I went with Mike Kirkland. And uh, we were toying with the idea of maybe, I mean, this is later, actually, 86 I saw them. We were like, maybe we should get a singer or add another guitar player. And then when we saw a duo, we're like, we're staying a trio. This is so cool. Yeah. You know. Bob Mould's still kicking it hard, man. Yeah. I DJed his gig in London like two weeks ago. Uh, it's the second time I'd like supported him DJing. And he brought his own sound desk, or his sound engineer brought his own sound desk, even though ours is pretty substantial, uh, and just cranked it up. It was the loudest show I've ever heard but still so pristine and clear, but just so intensely loud. And he played for like two hours. You barely stopped to like talk or like breathe or anything. Amazing. He just ran on stage, plugged in and just went. It was unbelievable. And the crowd were like, you know, I guess they were into Husker D when they were kids. But as a lot of people who don't stay in bands or in this world do, they mellow out. And I think they were a bit like, Jesus fucking Christ. Too much, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> They're expecting him to come out and do an acoustic set or something like that. Yeah. Know. Um, what a magical time. I mean, when uh, Prong eventually sort of, I guess, decided to call it a day for a while, were you just done? Were you done with making music or were you just done with that specific role in that band in that format of the label that you've been with? And I didn't know what I was doing at, at that point. Uh, like, I, I sort of... Uh, it's, it's a lot of personal things with me because like, I didn't... I had kind of like a crappy childhood and like I, it was like... And then like... Getting in a in a band and and uh, everything was moved so fast, you know, uh, for so for for that, that those periods that I didn't really uh, I was sort of disgusted with life. I just wa- I didn't know what I wanted to do. So uh, and then again, like I, I after like you know, then I started getting heavily into the sampler and then you know early versions of Cakewalk and then. You know, suddenly I, I, I woke up and uh, it was like two years went by and I was like, I've just been screwing around on a computer for a couple of years and I couldn't really make the music that I wanted to with it. It was like, uh, it was really moving too slow. I didn't know enough. I wasn't really a keyboard player. And um, I tried hooking up with some other people in order to, to get stuff off the ground. And, and, and I didn't play guitar for a really long time. And inevitably I, I, I picked it up again. I was like, yeah, maybe uh, I, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, is like, is, is just bashing it out, jumping around and like doing what I do now, which is just, uh, you know, still at my age, just like crushing it, trying to, you know, so that's really what, how Prong started and, you know, where I'm inevitably back now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How did you hook up with Danzig? Where did that friendship begin? Oh my God, I mean, Glenn, Glenn and Jerry. Is that from the old Boogie. New York punk scene, was it? Or? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, ironically, like I, I was... When they were looking for a guitar player, uh, Googie was like, you know, they're looking, for, you know, Glenn's looking for a band, and uh, you know, Rick's into it, and like this is how small the scene was. It's like, you know, they're auditioning guys. You should go down. I was like, I don't know, man. Like, you know, prong is just starting. You know, like, you know, what I forget what I was like. I didn't really want to do it, and it's like, you know, then Googie was always like bad mouthing Glenn. From Googie was the drummer, well, the seminal drummer in the Misfits, and we had a band together called Antidote which inevitably went on to do other things and it was a, like a really early, great hardcore band from New York. And then, um, and uh, Nunzio, the guitar player from that band, was my roommate. So we all knew each other. We all lived, I mean, no one was, it was, we all lived in these these crappy apartments on the Lower East Side and it was just a whole, you know, these dealing with roaches and rats and stuff. And I was like, I don't know, I just, I, I was sort of wanted to just do my own thing. And, uh, uh, I'd known Glenn for a really long time, and uh, when Prong got dropped, and we were supposed to be on this, the first OzFest, uh, he called me up, he goes, you're not doing the tour, and I was like, no, we got dropped, and we lost our tour support, and he's like, they, this was a Friday, OzFest was starting on Wednesday, and he goes, well, I'm kicking, I'm kicking the, uh, Mark Shawsey, I'm kicking this guy out, come fly out, learn, can you learn the songs, I go, what, in the day, he goes, yeah, just learn I learned the songs in a day <laughs> and then came out. We did one rehearsal and then that Wednesday I was out on OzFest. Like, you know, this is after Rude Awakening. I was like, well, this is cool. Like I like I mentioned earlier, I just wanted to sort of enjoy life or step back a while. And I was like, I'm getting paid to play guitar with Glenn. And, you know, we had like unbelievable amounts of women and drugs and alcohol. And I was like, this is great. But I mean, inevitably, after a year of that, I really got burnt out too. And did you I, go hard at it, did you? What's that? Did you go hard? Yeah. 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 I mean, it was fun for what it was. I something that I had to do because, um, like, uh, you know, like uh, always with Prong, I always sort of had to be the guy that would somehow keep the thing together. And while everyone else was running around doing whatever the hell they wanted to do all the time. So I was like, and then, you know, writing all the songs, you know, uh, de dealing with the business, you know, trying to maintain everyone's uh, insanity on the road, uh, etc. So, like you mentioned that, that, that was, when everyone was partying and going crazy on that Sepultura Pantera show, I'm like, I was the guy that was like, you know, I got to worry about my voice and like, I, you know, I got to make sure everyone's on the bus and all this stuff. So the opportunity to play with like just I'm getting paid to play guitar and don't have to worry about anything else was was pretty attractive for a, a brief period. Glenn, you're still friends with, obviously, as you know, that was when we first met was when you were hanging out with him. Uh, and you, I guess, got to actually write and record and be on a Danzig record a few years down the line as yeah. well, didn't you? After doing the touring guitar thing for a while. What was that like? Was that... I like, I mean, well, Glenn, you know, Glenn's the mastermind of Danzig. So, I mean, like, he just pretty much dictates to me and... Like, uh, because we come from that same background of, 
you know, Glenn's a little older than me, but he, like, you know, we were into, you know, the Sweet and, you know, T-Rex and, and, uh, Bowie and, and then we got into the Stooges and, and, you know, and then, you know, and then, you know, we, at that, at that same time, we were still into Sabbath and, like, you know, uh, I mean, Glenn goes even further back into his knowledge of, like, 50s music. I mean, he's another encyclopedia, too. Like, he knows unbelievable amounts of, like, old records and who who wrote the songs. And, like, he's insane. And still to this day, he'll go out on the road and, and buy, like, you know, hundreds of CDs. And uh, he's a definite... Hundreds, literally. Yeah, he's a music <laughs> fanatic. And, uh, you know, he knows every Elvis song, who played on it, blah, 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 who wrote it, what, you know, where they recorded it. So he knows even back into the 50s music world. And um, so, like, I, I, when he, he relates something to me, like, I know where he's coming from. You know, I know where he's coming from, you know, for the most part. You know, I don't agree with a lot of, you know, some of his methods, but I understand where he's coming from. And, you know, that's why we've been able to maintain, like, you know, a relationship for all these years. A lot, like, younger, the, you know, the, the non-baby baby boomers don't really get it that much, you know. So, and I have an older brother, and, like, you know, I have older brothers and sisters, so an older brother and, you know, three sisters. So, like, I grew up with that whole era. And, like, I, you know, from the minute, you know, I can remember, like, you know, I had Rolling Stones and, you know, Beatles and, you know, Motown music in my head, like, you know, so... Uh, it's uh, it's it's all the luck of the draw. It's how you grow up and how you can relate, and you know you wind up with people that you know, that you have similar interests and you know can relate to. What is your family life like? If you don't mind me asking, if you want to get into that, you said it was, it was like pretty a tumultuous. Uh, uh, it, it's like I, I'm I'm the youngest of five, and like every by the time everyone got out of there and went into college, I was sort of on my own, and then uh, you know like I was just sort of like uh, like my mother was the only one left and like she was working all the time. So, uh, like I was sort of stuck, like, you know, just either in the, in the basement, uh, like trying to figure out with a, a stylus. And I played bass as a kid. I never played guitar and like, was just learning records and just had all these records and would just be there, like trying to figure out stuff. And then like, you know, uh, uh, you know, or I don't know if you don't have really in England, but like I grew up in England, was a lot of like what we call, you know, sort of like cuisines or guidos. And like, you know, it was that whole summer, summer of Sam was really a, a, a Spike Lee movie, really show what it was like. It was like, you know, the, the, the disco people versus like this small amount of punk people. And it's like, I mean, I had it when I was, I was playing in bands as a teenager and I'd have to like look out my window, like down the street to the bus stop and like, see who was there, see if I was going to get my ass kicked or, like, beat up or whatever. Like, I was always, like, paranoid, you know, like, with, with uh, you know, just just getting beat up by kids that just didn't, older, like, guys that didn't like the way I looked. And You were uh, taking your life into your own hands when you dressed like a punk or a metalhead or a rocker. Yeah, totally back then. Different thing back then, right? You were really, like, putting your personal safety on the line. I remember I had a, a Lou Reed t-shirt that uh, I got, and I, I don't know, it was like about 12 or 13, and I got like so much crap from uh, kids in the neighborhood, which is like, who the hell is that, you faggot? Like, just like, I was like, oh my God. And it was like, even, even it had a, had a deep purple shirt and no one knew what the hell they were. It was like, it was, it, 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 people don't understand like what it was like back then. I mean, still it was, to go 
to be wear that flag. I mean, we really earned our cool back then, you know. And then even moving into the city, which is Manhattan, you know, from Queens, was a, a struggle back then because then you had to deal with, you know, a lot of the immigrant groups that were in there that were, you know, it was tough down there. So well, we're I was under attack from everybody. It was it's like the, the Warriors, isn't it? Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, Dantic as a man. What's he like as a dude, as a guy? He gets a lot of like contradictory stories from different people, either saying he's super nice or he's an asshole. He's a very, um, I don't know, like a, a contradictory figure. He is kind of contradictory because his his dealings with out, out, people outside the inner sanctum sanctorum of of uh, the Danzig gang is completely different than you know, like he he's like has a gang like mentality. He's just like you know when you know like where where the you know, we're the core of it and everyone else is the enemy. Right. So, uh, and, and he definitely has an old school, like, 50s attitude about a lot of stuff and politically as well. And and I totally understand where he's coming from. Like, my brother is, like, has uh, has similar views on, and it, it, these are unpopular views in, in today's era a lot of ways, but, uh, you know, like, I could relate to him. Again, I don't agree with everything he says, so, but, uh, and, and what he does, but... You know, like, I understand where he's coming from. What do you think about what happened to Phil? I assume you saw all of that um, when he came out of the Dime Bash. I think it's a great thing because now, I mean, he, he's got, he's cleaning up his act from what I heard. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's good to have, if, whatever opinions people have on the inside, I mean, there's, there's no reason. I mean, that goes from the left side, too. I mean, like, yeah, people, yeah. you know, people need to keep their mouths shut in today's era and uh, have the ability to do that and, and be cautious of other people's feelings and sensitive to other people's uh, uh, you know uh, backgrounds other people's uh, feelings about things I mean you, you can't just uh, be that egotistical to shoot your mouth off all the time and uh, uh, you know I think the, the world is moving in a better place of tolerance and we need to like continue with that and uh, I think the backlash against them has, has been a wake-up call for them what do you think it means for the future of alternative music, rock and roll music, uh, a form of music which traditionally is about being outwardly spoken, expressive, contradictory, controversial? What do you think that means for the future, for young bands coming up, unafraid to say anything because they don't want to rock the boat? Well, it's a challenge for them to, to, to become more articulate and uh, uh, find ways of, of, of creating... Uh, lyrics and and uh, ideas that uh, that are more world conscious in a way. So uh, it, it's I think that the world is moving away from you know what our opinions are and how 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 important they are into a more a, 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 a group consciousness. So uh, you know, and I'm being egotistical saying that too because I mean, Prawn's lyrics have definitely developed into that as well. You know. With that in mind, and, and I just think we have to be sensitive and and uh, and move forward. I mean, we can't rely on on uh, you know the the never mind the bollocks attitude anymore. It's things change, and uh, you know, in a nostalgic sense, that's fine. But otherwise, uh, you know, it's a different world now. Right on, I agree with that. Uh, let's talk about Marilyn Manson. A figure like that, do you think he could exist today? Obviously, you work with him directly. You've experienced his world. No, I, I don't get... think so as much. You know, and I had a, I've been thinking about that a lot. Like the like the Lemmys, the Mansons. You know, uh, I think the last 
the Aussies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if, so, if a guy was biting the head off of like a you know a pigeon or a dove or whatever it was, now he'd be vilified till the end of his career, right? Probably. Um, uh, I don't think people are concerned about the the you know, like like uh, anti-religious sentiment is is not as shocking as it was. It's hard to shock people these days. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think the. You know, like I have a daughter who's young, and like she doesn't care about those old, like the rock. She's like, you know, like obviously they're caring about, you know, the, the, their stars or 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 DJs and producers that really don't have that much personality, and uh, and that just indicates to me of of what you know what's current. I mean, it may come back in ten years or twenty years from now, but um, uh, I think individuality. Is is not that much of a big deal anymore, and uh, uh, it's like you know, uh, the Lemmys and the Bowies. These are the, the last stand for uh, these type of personalities, at least in the the rock world. I mean, but even the Kanye West, etc. I think people are going to get are inevitably sick of the of individuals. More or less. How does that sit with someone like you who grew up very much as an individual, inspired by individuals? Well, I mean, I, I have I have reason for recourse because I, I date back to that. So, uh, but I'm 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 cautious of it. I mean, I you know it's uh, uh, how do I relate to it? I just do what I have to do. But I mean, I, I don't I don't think that you have to be, and maybe that I suffer with uh, my popularity or anything like that because. Uh, I, I I don't mind sitting back and not being you know under the spotlight too much, and it doesn't really do that much for me. I'm I'm more concerned with with uh, you know my own spirituality in a way where you know I they, I think almost you know uh, throwing my uh, my individuality around almost as a battle with that in a lot of ways. So that's just from the way I've matured really. So uh, I, I I don't need to. You know, I'm not knocking Lemmy at all in this, but I, I don't need to be hanging out at a place that I could be seen all the time, like the Rainbow in L.A. or, or you know, like being uh, uh, glorified in any way. It just seems, it makes me, it's not that it makes me uncomfortable. It's like, it, that's not what I seek happiness out of, you know. If I can get through the day and, and try to be healthy and in some way and, uh, you know, do my job and, you know, not worry too much about the future seems to be enough in my later career than anything. And uh, everything else sort of interferes with that a bit. How has your spirituality shaped your professional approach to what you do? I it's mean, a good question. Well, I mean, uh, it, it, when I think of my professional approach, I mean, it, it's just being extremely collaborative with people. Like uh, That seems to be the theme of your career dating way back from, I guess, the revolving door of people that have always been in prong to the people you've always hooked up and teamed up with. It seems like there's this innate desire within you to mix things up. Yeah, I like to get new blood in, and uh, and I like to say yes. So it's, it's uh, like, even, like, you know, I like, a, like a, it's, it amazes me how some people will hire a producer, for instance, and then they're going, look, like, I'm battling with this guy the whole time. And I'm like, well, you hired him, and... You got to trust them, you know. You got to, uh, you know, if he comes up with an idea, you just go with it. I mean, what, what's the why hire somebody or or hook up with somebody if you're just gonna like you know, because you want your way, you're gonna step on his toes. 
So, like, you know, that's not the old Tommy Victor. Like, I, I would, just from the sake of getting my way, I would step on people's toes. But inevitably, you know, after time goes by, I'm like, I even just roll the dice. Like, you know, like working with this kid, Chris Collier, who's worked on the last couple of prong records. Like, he has, like, these ideas. And initially, I'm like, uh, I'd be like, let's take it aback by them. And 99% of the time, if I give it a shot and I go along with this stuff, then down the road, I'm like, thank God I went along with his idea because it always turns out for the best. So, like, you know, when you have a group conscious, I'm always, like, really into that where, you know, like, uh, you know, then, then you know, like, a guy, a kid like Art comes in and, like, you know, he'll just uh, rearrange, like, some of the drum parts and, and just, uh, you know, put his thing into it. I'm like, just do whatever the hell you want to do, dude. Like, you know, like, I'm not concerned with, with uh, you know, stepping on his toes at all. Developing tell, trust is a really important thing. Tell me about Al, um, what you've learned from someone like him. I guess as much personally as professionally, because he's lived a life, right? He's seen and done just about everything there is to see and do and experience and feel. And I think that's what you would think, but uh, I, you know, I think uh, I, I don't think that's true. Okay. Uh, I think Al has still has a lot of growing up to do. Uh, you know, he would probably lose his mind if he heard that, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's, uh, he comes from that old school who think that, you know, it's, you know, as soon as you got some success that you know it all and that you're, you're like, you know, this authority on all subjects, etc., right. which just isn't the case. That's impossible. That's just insanity. You know, it's like, I think as you grow older, the, the less you realize, you know, and the, the, the more that you're. You're, uh, you feel like entrusting to others. So, uh, you know, Al is an extremely, unbelievably intelligent guy who uses it for his own benefit. And like, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's uh, uh, calculating and uh, he's extremely smart. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting way how because he's so smart, it's amazing what he gets away with a lot of times. So, uh, I, I mean, I, I can hang out with Al Jorgensen like all day for three weeks, basically in our, our, we're from the same era again. Like, you know, we're, you know, like the, all heralded killing joke is like, that. that's the, the litmus test for all music. And, you know, like obviously with ministry, it's always been that way. And, uh, you know, uh, you know his his tastes are definitive, definitively classic and fantastic, and in his knowledge of sports and uh, he's a, he's he's a great social guy to hang out with. He's a lot of fun. You know, uh, when it goes into the business side of things, you know, uh, although he he waves this this uh, you know uh, socialist flag around, he's like probably one of the, like, the biggest capitalists I've ever like worked with, like ever. You know, like it's it's uh, he's he's a perfect Hillary Clinton supporter. You know, it's like it, it's just it's all BS. <laughs> How does someone who's I guess you know experimented with hardcore drugs as much as he has? How does someone like that balance a professional business mind with? Well, I think he's the done madness. It. He did it in the old school way of of making it appear that he was that big into drugs or something in order. Because that was what was cool. That back Hunter then. S. Thompson style. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's part of your it's part of your rebellious persona of being anti-establishment, and that's as dead as thank God. I think 
the universe that 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 mentality is is been driven away from you know since society because it's terrible but it needed things needed to go through that in order for people to realize what a hunk of dog shit it was so it's like uh, I think he still holds on to that a little bit, and you know, I mean, there needs to be Al Jorgensen's around. I mean, you know, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, uh, in a certain sense of the word, I mean, he's almost a martyr for that whole thing. But uh, I, it's impossible for somebody to stay alive if if the the uh, amount of of self abuse that it the uh, populist believes that he indulges it to be true. I mean, I mean, I know he did it, and he'll he'll keep and he keeps resorting to that. Like you know, he wears it like a badge, and it's like I, I personally I don't really care. You know, it's like I mean, if if, if I uh, you know I keep things secretive, I I wouldn't throw that around as something to be proud of. What about Marilyn Manson? I don't know that much about Manson. I mean, you know, like uh, I, I don't know that much about him. Um, Did you get on with him in a creative sense or not? No, I mean, I didn't really do that much. They sent me in a room, like you know, Trent. I, I worked out, went down there, and they sent me in a room, and I, did, I don't even remember what I did because, I mean, yeah, I mean, back in those days, there was a lot of drugs running around, and I was freaking wasted the whole time. So it was like uh, I don't really remember too much about. Well, I always knew him. He's a very polite, and he was very. Very nice guy to hang out with, and uh, you know I think he's another genius. Like he's he's up there with with Glenn and Al, and you know Rob Zombie and all those guys. They deserve where they're at. I mean, there's no one gets in these positions out of mistakes. You know, it's all because of uh, their backgrounds and you know their mentalities and you know how they you know uh, their hard work and what they've done. I mean, it's like you know he like uh, I'm lazy. Like I. I the things that these guys do to propagate their uh, uh, self-image and to get out there and to be idolized is just not worth it to me. So more power to them if they have to continue to be, uh, you know, in the in the limelight to that extent, is, and and that's what they feel is is uh, is a way to happiness is fantastic for them. So you've never been bitten by the fame bug. That's never been. You know, I have been, but I'm, I'm like I said, I'm too lazy to put the work in to make <laughs> right, it happen. Right. And like you know, I'm, I'm more, I'm more concerned with, with, I, I, with not driving myself crazy than than doing that. You know, there's a lot of baggage that goes along with all that. I mean, it's, it's like people say, like you know, you know, the Howard Hughes and these guys with all the, you know, with all this added responsibilities to that. That I'm just, you know, I, I just. I don't have the capability to handle it. That's why I'm not there. And are you happy with what you've achieved in your career? And not in your really. Per- no? No, no. I mean, um, uh, I think I could have done a lot better for myself. So it's like, you know, uh, I'm content where I am. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm happy for today. Like, I'm happy that I, I could, you know, do what I'm doing and, and continue and, uh, you know that that's that's almost good enough to an extent, but um, you know, like I'm working on another record. I still, you know, I, I I like to keep making records and and try to like you know whatever that means in this day and age. You know, it's like no one really notices that much or you know cares too much. But uh, it's it's always a little bit. There's always more challenges. There's other things outside of music that I would have liked to have accomplished. That you know more and such as. Like, Golf. Uh, There's still time. Tennis. Look at Alex Cooper. No, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> he had the money in order to do it. I mean, like, I'm always like run. I'm like I run off a tour 
and then it's like you gotta I gotta go start writing another prong record then I get called in to do like dancing sessions then I gotta go you know out on a, on a little run with Glenn then I get back and then I got a prong tour to do then I gotta finish write lyrics for a prong record and by the time I know it there's another album cycle to go through that's what my last five years have been like and then I have outside projects like I'm you know, like I worked on a couple of little piddly friend things here and there that I, I do and this thing called Primitive Race that I contributed a little bit to and uh, there's another project I've been working on and another one like you know like like Mike Schleibaum from Darkest Hour and I started working on this other project that's been taking years to finish and just like you know um, you know it's it, th th these things are these things are great I mean it's like you know it's just finding the time to do it and then you know I, you know didn't you know, hanging out with the girlfriend, watching you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, Downton Abbey and whatever. You know, it's so like, you do a bit of Netflix and chill as well. Yes. Oh yeah. No, I have to. I mean, yeah, it's like, yeah. I can't. You know, uh, it's, it's like I like to get things done, and like you know, uh, the key to it, I learned. Like I when like doing Rude Awakening and these earlier records, where I'd be like huddled and you know trying to like you know make all these things happen and a lot of times these things are like in, in art and not to sound like this pompous ass but in art you know a lot of these things it's just like they're gifts of the universe or from god or whatever where you know they just sort of happen and it's like you know you have to allow that you know to happen and you know some of these some, when you're well rested and you know uh you have less stress these things come a lot easier and you get the work done you know when the more you press it's like without with athletes too they're in the batting cage. I mean, I know you don't know baseball that much, but it's like they're in the batting cage all the time and they're up there trying to get a hit. They never do. And it's like every coach will know that. It's just like, you know what? You're not playing tomorrow. Take a couple of days off. Don't even fucking think about baseball for a little bit and then come back and they're suddenly back on track, you know? So I've learned that where, you know... Um, I think that's the same with everything, right? With love, yeah. with happiness. Yeah. If you're actively seeking it... Never happens. The desperations, the smell of it's going to just put whatever it is off, right? So the whole yeah. Tinder generation is sort of <laughs> like, uh, they're in a heap of hurt. Huh? Um, but that, even as a 30-year-old, that shit blows my mind. The really? Fact, yeah, the fact that people can't just get up and go speak to a you know, girl or a boy or whatever in a bar and just approach them as a human well, rather than have to sit there and digitally try and connect. Like, that's fucked up to me. Yeah, but that, that's because you, you haven't lived in Los Angeles because people <laughs> will go into a bar and everyone, no one can talk to one another and no one knows how to be friendly because these people did, grew up without public transportation in like this sprawl of suburbia and they don't know how to communicate with one another. So it's like, you know, you go, I mean, it's the most unfriendly place in the world. I love it for other reasons, but most of my friends are, are New Yorkers and, and people from the East Coast because it, you just, no one has any social skills. And they're at a bar and they're on their, on their phones and it's retarded. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you can tell the real LA people, they, they, they have to propagate themselves on what they're, their accolades via, uh, you know, their Tinder profiles. So it doesn't surprise me at all. To, to, you know, define yourself by your achievements rather than your characteristics. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And that's all anybody cares about. <laughs> uh, with the last record, just to bring it home, um, I guess, was that your way of tipping the hat and just acknowledging and paying tribute to some of the key acts, artists, bands? Well, that... on the Songs from the Black Hole record, yeah. I mean, there's been a studio record after that, so it's not really our last record. No Absolutes being the last record. Uh yeah, that that was a little bit of that, but it's trying to find like the really the the, uh, the the guitar influences and vocal influences of prom. So 
I mean, Henry Rollins being a huge one, you know, HR or, and the Bad Brains being everyone's influence. And then, uh, you know, again, Husker Du, guitar influence, trio influence, Killing Joke being the influence of... And I wanted to do a song that, you know, Raven was on. So, you know, a tribute to Raven. Uh, uh, then, you know, like, again, I would I mentioned Black Flag. And then, like, something like Neil Young, because I've always been into, like, simple parts with guitar and... You know, uh, that was a huge challenge doing that and uh, uh, et cetera. So, you know, it's been a, you know, just put it down anywhere right now. <laughs> just trying uh, to find a home for a guitar. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and then, uh, I mean, Neil Young is one of those guys, he's a punk rocker at heart. And you, yeah, that's what I mean. you was, see the anger and the passion yeah. and the energy that he exudes still to this day. And that for me, although the genre he works in is quite far removed from what a typical person's opinion of what punk might be he's one of the, he's a rebel isn't he yeah totally he's, absolutely and that, that's right and, and his guitar playing is is no one can do it and no one can play like him and it's to me that's what guitar is all about is where it's it's uh you know uh i'm gonna sound so corny with this but it's like sort of a paintbrush and like you know i mean that's another dead thing too like the, the neil youngs of the world are you know, in an era of metal where everyone just sounds exactly the same and they're playing this, you know, it, it's uh, just character is what, you know, the blues is about. And, you know, you pick up a guitar and just do your own thing. I mean, you know, who cares what anybody thinks, really? I mean, you know, now it's just a race for, you know, uh, achievements in the eyes of other players. And that's not really... Uh, it's, it's not, it's a dead concept because it comes from, you know, baby boomers in a different era, but it's, uh, it's really sh true where, uh, you know, the Tony Iommi's of the world and like, you know, like no one plays like them, no one can sound like them and it's unbelievably fantastic, you know, and, and, you know, Jordy from Killing Joke and Neil Young, I mean, these are the guys that, are, you know, that I think are cool, you know, and it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the faceless uh, technicians of the world don't do it for me. Uh, and a kind of Jerry Springer final thoughts. Uh, um, what do you think the key piece of wisdom that your journey so far has imparted and instilled in yourself would be? What's the main life lesson that this crazy circus of rock and roll has taught you? I was thinking about it too. Like I said, I, we took a cab, uh, well, Uber from <clears throat> down in Greenwich to get here. And uh, I just realized, like, how many times I've been in London and how, it, it, like, it's been, you know, like, uh, you have to learn a sense of gratitude somehow in life. And it's like, you, you, you just, there's no other way around it. And, uh, like, uh, I just felt, like, extremely grateful. Like, you know, like, just driving by the, the Tower of London and, again, for the millionth time and just still going, holy damn, there's... 75 million people in America that never seen that and have uh, don't realize how fantastic England is and and what an amazing place London is and it's like those those senses of gratitude and it's like the same thing I get sometimes when like the the half hour I get of that feeling after making a record I'm like okay you know I did you know those you, all the the bloodshed and all the you know, the pain of, of coming up with one line of lyric that you're just driving you crazy is worth it, you know. So you get a sense of gratitude uh, that you have to develop somehow. 
And if somebody says, well, how do you stop being negative? And, I, and like somebody, uh, uh, you ask that question, uh, you know, it's like, you know, you know, you're somebody's like, you know, I like, go, well, you, you're being negative. And I was like, well, how do you, can you possibly stop being negative? By not being negative. <laughs> so when you stop being negative, don't be negative anymore. Uh, thanks for a really engaging and enlightening conversation, Tommy. Thanks, man. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you for your time. And uh, I hope to do this again sometime soon over a beer somewhere down the line. Thank you, dude. Thank you, man. That was great. Thank you very much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.